Happy New Year, everyone. Today's a special occasion, the first day of 2017, and it's a Sunday morning. Doesn't happen very often, does it? Church falling on a New Year's Day or a Christmas Sunday last week. So I thought, well, what sort of message do you bring on a special occasion like today? Probably something positive and encouraging to help you achieve your New Year's resolutions, right? This is the year that you'll do it. New Year, new you. How many times have you heard that awful cliche? Five lessons on keeping your New Year's resolutions? Maybe that would be a good go for to this morning? Or maybe that's not spiritual enough. How about challenging us to all read the Bible in 2017 or tips for making 2017 the year of prayer with God or loving one another, etc., etc.? You get the idea? I think some of these ideas could be good, but just to give you a little taste for this morning and really every morning for hopefully the rest of 2017, I want us to work through God's Word as we have been. We've been in the book of Genesis here at Embassy, and from day one, we've said as we gather as a church, we would prefer that the calendar or the events and circumstances of the world do not affect or dictate the way that we preach God's Word. That rather, we would choose a book of the Bible and then finish that book of the Bible and then move to a new book of the Bible until that one's done, until maybe one day we'll preach through all 66 books. At this pace, it may take quite a while. We've been in Genesis 1 through 3 for over 13 weeks, but I want to give you a little heads up. We'll be moving much more quickly in the weeks to come, starting this morning. So instead of it being a New Year's resolution message, we're going to look at sin and suffering. So instead of happy, clappy, pep talk, We're going to meditate on some of the hardest questions and some of the most difficult things that happen in our life. Death. Pain. Injustice. Sins against us. And sins that we commit. One of the biggest objections to faith in God in general, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, if you're here today and you're not sure If you should believe in God, one of the common objections is that God can't exist because suffering exists. If there's a good God, how can He allow this to happen? Maybe He's not powerful enough to stop it. Well, if He was powerful enough, then He should stop it. And so the argument goes, therefore, He just must not exist. I'm assuming most of you don't face that challenge on a day-in, day-out basis, but many of us face the challenges of suffering In our own lives, we do ask the question, how could God let this happen? Fill in the blank. Where was God when so-and-so died? We often ask the question, does he really love me if he let this happen to me? And I don't want to pretend that I, in my own wisdom, have all the answers for you, not just today in this message, but for the rest of our time as we gather together week in and week out as a church. I want to be extremely sensitive to whatever pains and sufferings you've experienced in 2016 or even just your whole life. And I want to be hopeful this morning, but I also want to be realistic 
2017 will be painful too. More people will die. Suffering will continue unless Jesus comes back. So I think what we should do is just continue on God's Word and hope and pray that we would trust that every single word is profitable for us, including the start of 2017 as we look at the sin and suffering in Genesis 4 and 5 and 6. Let's pray one more time before we dive into this passage. Father, I'm acutely aware of my inadequacies now to speak a word on my own to give hope to people who are hurting today. So, Father, with the brokenness of my own heart, as I think of the sin in our hearts and in the suffering that we experience, I pray that not my words, but yours, that they will breathe life. They will speak hope. Do that now in Jesus' name. Amen. One simple idea, not probably a new one, but as we read this passage of Scripture, I want to start in Genesis chapter 4 on page 3 of these black Bibles and read this first story of Cain and Abel. And as we read through it, I want us to be thinking about how sin is the source of all evil and suffering. It's a very simple point. It's hopefully one that if you're a Christian, you've heard before, but one I want us to linger on this morning. Sin is the source of all evil and suffering in this world. If we understand the story of Scripture so far, it's, it's been brief, it's been short. In Genesis 1, 2, and 3, we don't get lots of little details. We get just the big idea. There's a good God. He made the world good. He made people in it to be His image bearers. They are to be like kings, like the kings of the world representing statues, image bearers. He made marriage, he made male and female, he made the world full of many good things. And in chapter 3, we saw how that world has been fractured and how sin entered the world through deception and through discontentment and for hoping that God, hoping and trusting that their words and their ways were better than God's word and God's ways. So this is the next story. They've been removed from the Garden of Eden, so now we see life outside the garden in chapter 4. It says in chapter 4, verse 1, that Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Immediately in this first verse, as we start looking through it, we see a challenging text in terms of its translation. I think the best way to explain this is that Eve is boastful in the beginning of this chapter. She is thinking that she made a man like the Lord. So you have with the help of the Lord. So just like God made man, oh, I can make man too, is one way to translate what she's trying to say here. As we read the rest of the chapter, I want you to keep that in mind because she's going to say something very different at the end of the chapter. It's to be a contrast between verse 1 and the end of chapter 4. So let's move on to chapter 4, verse 2. 
And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry. Some translations say he was furious. And his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. But you must rule over it. Look how verse 8 speaks so matter-of-factly. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? You should just know and make a little note. That's the same word used in Genesis 2.15 when God tells Adam he is to keep the garden. Am I my brother's protector, garter, keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of the Nod, in the land of Nod, east of Eden, which should be reminiscent of the end of chapter 3. Adam and Eve sinned, they were moved east of the garden, and now Cain sins, he is removed even further east of the garden and from where Adam and Eve were living. Verse 17, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Erad, and Erad fathered Mehujal, and Mehujal fathered Methuselah, and Methushal fathered Lamech, and Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Adah, and the name of the other was Zillah. Adah bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tebul Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal Cain was Nema. Lamech said to his wives, in plural, wives, the first polygamist, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. 
If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son, and called his name Seth, for she said, now notice what she says this time, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Sin is the source of all evil and suffering in the world. There's a lot of things that we can ask about this story. Just like in chapters 1 through 3, there's a lot of details that are missing. And therefore, it leads for you and me to start asking questions and speculations about this or that. Many people ask questions about where Cain and Abel their wives came from. You see that later in the text. Where were these women from? Were they sisters? Was there incest? And all sorts of questions where you start to wonder, what in the world is going on here? And I don't think that that's the point of this story. And if it was the point, we would get that information. So just as a little little tip for you as you read the Bible, let's just stick with what we are given. Let's make sense of what this says. We're not told where the wives came from. We're not sure what all's going on outside of this one little story. We get introduced to Cain and Abel, and they seem to be grown men. They're already working in the field. They're already past being children and teenagers. One of the important things we need to realize is the nature of sin. And that's one of the things this story is trying to point out. We're not even really given the answer to why Cain's offering is not accepted, but Abel's is. Many people have suggested that it's probably because, you see, Abel gave an animal offering, and that's just like what God would require of the Israelites. But really, later on, if you read the rest of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, there are also fruit and grain offerings. It's not that there is only animal sacrifice offerings. So that really doesn't make the most sense of it, nor does the text explicitly say one way or the other. We're just left unknown, wondering why. Why was Cain's sacrifice not accepted? Here's what we do know. What we do know is that Cain's heart is not right. He brings the sacrifice, and as God has no regard for that sacrifice, he gets very angry. That's what we do know. We do know that God in His kindness then comes to Cain. And he sees the state of his heart. And what does he do? He warns Cain. Cain, look closely at verse 6. Why are you angry? What's wrong with your heart? Why is your face fallen? And he encourages him, if you do well, walk with God, live a life pleasing to me, your offering will be accepted. It's not like he's just anti-Cain. There's something wrong with Cain. He's hoping and encouraging Cain to make his relationship with God right. And then notice what he says. If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. This passage in verse 6, I think, is one of the clear things that we do have evidence of, and therefore, I think one of the important parts of this story that we should make sure gets its say Sin 
Sin is crouching at the door. This awful scene that we're about to see in the next scene with Cain and Abel in the field murdering his brother. It's a result of sin. Anger in Cain's heart. These are all the things that I think we should be thinking about. And all these other questions, I think you should just let them go. The story is here to teach us about sin and how sin is the source of evil and suffering. John Owen says, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. If you want to make a good New Year's resolution, how about kill sin in your life? Whether or not you make that kind of resolution, I want to teach us three things about sin from this story. I want us to see this picture of the crouching, deadly sin in our hearts. You know, in 2016, I didn't realize that I would learn a lot about this picture. My wife normally is the kind of person that is anti-violence in terms of entertainment, you know, action movies. She can't really stand any intense thrillers. She gets real kind of intense and worked up. So to my surprise, 2016 was a year of me every so often stepping into the living room and noticing that my wife is watching world's deadliest animals. Like, what is this? Like, it's so shocking knowing her that she can hardly watch a simple movie that's not even that intense, and she's just like, oh, I turned this off. It's got to be like the Hallmark Channel or that's it, you know? Predictable, happy ending, terrible acting. (laughs) But Netflix's world's deadliest animals caught her attention. And it was such a surprise, and as I sat there at times and watched it with her, you'd see the animals crouching, watching their prey, and then pouncing. I mean, that's the image. Watch world's deadliest animals sometimes. Get the images of the cheetah or the lion slowly making their way to the hyenas or the zebras. And you're like, "Uh uh-oh, they're in big trouble. That's what God is telling Cain here. It's quite the picture, isn't it? It is crouching hiding behind the door, deceitfully waiting, and then pouncing. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. It's going to attack. So here's what we need to learn about sin first. Sin, first and foremost, is rebellion against God. Our sin is always, first and foremost, a rebellion against God. That's the first thing I think we need to learn about sin if we're going to fight our sin. If we're not going to be overtaken by that crouching tiger, hidden dragon. Notice in this story, Abel does nothing wrong. Like, what does Abel do to tick his brother off? The great sin of this story is not Cain murdering Abel, although that's terrible. It is that Cain is upset with God. God rejected Cain's offering, and that led him to be furious. You could maybe insert in and just assume jealousy. text does not tell us this. It says that he is angry. Abel doesn't go around bragging, oh, God accepted my offering. We see no evidence to think that Abel does something to tick his brother off. 
Abel got murdered because Cain's view of God is distorted. Therefore, if you want to kill sin, you must identify what you are upset with God about. If you're going to make a resolution that in 2017 you're going to go after your sin, you need to ask, what am I not trusting God in for? What am I doubting about Him and His promises? If you've never connected the dots like this, I want us to pause and just take a moment. I don't know if God will provide this. Finances, job, spouse. That leads to anxiety. I don't know if God will provide leads to anxiety. That's where it comes from. The sin of anxiety is a failure to trust in the God who provides. Use another example. I don't know if God is really going to execute justice. So what do we do? Vengeance is mine. I will take justice into my own hands and I will repay this evil with my own evil. You're not judge. This is exactly what we're seeing here. Cain is upset with God's view of being judge and determining which offering is right and which offering is wrong. So I'm going to make things straight. Any of you struggled and said, I don't know if I can trust God's timing. So I will just get what I want now. I don't know if God really loves me. So then I will seek for my identity, my satisfaction, my love, my joy in something else because I'm doubting the love of God. Are you seeing the relationship between your view of God and your sin? That's the first thing you need to know about sin, is it's a rebellion against God. It is a failure to trust God for all that He is and all that He has revealed Himself to us. And this was Cain's biggest mistake. Second thing you need to learn about sin if you're going to fight it. Sin is a disease in your heart. Verse 5 makes it very clear that Cain is furious. He is angry. He has anger in his heart. That anger spills out into murder. Murder just didn't happen. Murder started here in his heart. Then the action happened. And so it is, my friends, with you and me every time we sin. The doubts about God lead to destructive desires in our hearts, which then lead to destructive behaviors with our hands. You know, Yoda might be on to something. Do you know Jedi Yoda in episode one said, fear leads to anger and anger leads to hate and hate leads to suffering. The words of Jesus, though, are much more clear and important than Yoda's. Jesus said in Matthew 15, Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth and goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But things that come out of a person's mouth come from your heart, and they defile them. 
For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false testimonies, slander. These are the things that defile a person. Eating with unwashed hands does not defile someone. What a classic example of us thinking that our external behaviors are the focus of our holiness and our godliness. Jesus makes it so, so clear. Sin is not merely a behavior problem. This is why I get really frustrated when I hear at times people tell others, just stop it. I do not watch Saturday Night Live, but when I was in a counseling class for seminary, okay, I was shown a Saturday Night Live skit by Bob Newhart, and he's pretending to be a counselor psychologist, and in walks this struggling girl, and she starts sharing her problems, and Bob Newhart says, all right, I want you to take this down. She gets her little notepad out, and he says, stop it. And she's like, anything else? Nope, that's it. You can go. And the whole skit is this back and forth between this counselee and Bob Newhart, the counselor, and on and on they go where she's trying to like get more from him and essentially all he's saying is, you know, you just need to stop it. It's a funny skit, but it's sad because I have heard time and time again, pastors, counselors, Christians, essentially that's all the counsel that they give. Stop it. One of the most defining memories for me of this was when I was at a church and a pastor was speaking on lust. From Matthew chapter 5, you guys familiar with Jesus' Sermon on the Mount? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus goes through the Ten Commandments and he says, you've heard it said, but now I say to you. When he gets to lust, he says, you have heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever has committed lust in his heart has already committed adultery. So the pastor steps around the pulpit like this, gets real serious, looks at all the guys and says, guys, did you hear that? Stop looking at porn. Silence. Preacher effect, you know. Let that sit. Cut the porn out, he says again. Two, three times, just starts shouting, yelling. We gotta cut it out, men! And then he comes back Keeps going on in his sermon. Have you heard that sort of counsel before? Just cut it out. Stop it. Stop it. That's not very helpful. I don't know if you're feeling like, no, that sounds really helpful. There are times where we should encourage and exhort one another. But friends, that's not going to help you with your sin. Sin flows from your heart. His anger led to murder. So something's wrong with your heart that leads you to click on pornography. So don't just tell someone, stop looking at porn. Let's just imagine, for example, that some man hears that pastor and says, okay, no more computer, no more internet on my phone, no more anything. I'm cutting it out. I'm stopping it. Does that guarantee he stops looking at lust at women every day of his life? As he walks about, lusts after his co-workers, the heart could still be defiled and wicked and full of all kinds of lust. But I'm not looking at porn anymore because the pastor said, cut it out. 
Do you see what I'm saying here? Do you see what Jesus is saying? It's more than just stopping a behavior. Hey, you need to stop murdering. No, no. Sin is crouching at the door and it's going to pounce on your heart and it's going to overtake you and you're going to do things like murder. This is why it is so important if you want to grow in godliness in 2017 and you want to see lasting change, then you need to know that you can only be changed by the transformation of the Holy Spirit as He changes your heart. Read Romans 8 later today, and it will make sense of a lot of the things we're talking about in today's message. Romans chapter 8. In Romans 8, one of the key verses about this point, put to death the deeds of the flesh by the Holy Spirit. It's the only way you can put to death the deeds of the flesh. How do you put lust, gossip, murder, sexual immorality, all the other things Jesus listed? You need your heart changed, which then should ask all of us the question, how do we do that? Exactly, you don't. You cannot change your heart. Put to death the deeds of the flesh by what? By the Holy Spirit. So this is what it looks like in 2017 to kill sin. Bended faces on the ground. Knees sore from falling before God and saying, God, I need your help. Holy Spirit, come. Change me. And if you want to find your sails blown in the direction of godliness, then put yourself where the Holy Spirit's wind blows under God's Word. It is through the Word of God and through prayer as we humbly put ourselves before God that our eyes see Jesus in God's Word and we're transformed. The hard work of growing in godliness and killing sin will happen as we remember that anger and anxiousness and lusts and hateful attitudes are a result of our disproportionate view of God. So what's the antidote to a wrong view of God? The right view of God. If you want to kill sin and have the Spirit of God change your heart, then know what God is really like. Learn what He is like in 2017 and fix your face on Him through His Word. One of the best things you could do to help fight your sin is to stop looking at your sin and read a book that's just about God. Read A.W. Tozer's The Knowledge of the Holy. Read John Piper's The Pleasures of God. Read J.I. Packer's Knowing God. Or better yet, read the Bible. And as you read the Bible, think, I have one aim as I read the Bible. I want to get to know God. I just want to know what he's like so that way my mind stops getting distorted by the inaccurate view of God so I can trust him and not be anxious anymore. So I can be satisfied with the pleasure of knowing him and not need the pleasures of this world. 
If we understand that sin is flowing out of sinful hearts, then we realize that we need our hearts changed. And if we need our hearts changed, then we're going to be desperate before the God in humble submission and prayer. And if we understand that ultimately all of our sin has its root in our unbelief, in our inaccurate view of God, it's first and foremost a rebellion against God, then we're going to spend our times getting to know what God is like. That's a longer explanation than just stop it, but I believe, I'm hoping, I'm praying it's a more helpful one. The one that the Bible itself gives as the antidote to the disease. It will take time, though. It will not be quick. It takes a long time for stubborn, proud people to humble themselves before God, doesn't it? And if you've got a lot of baggage about what your view of God is, then it's going to take a while to figure out what all you are failing to trust God in. But there's one more thing I want us to learn about sin. That's what we've already said. Sin is the source of all evil and suffering. Chapters 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11 have a spiraling effect of sin and evil. Notice that we get the first story on outside of the garden is an angry man who murders his brother. What's the next story? A man named Lamech who marries many women and murders more people. What's the next story? Turn to chapter 5. A genealogy, which is not much of a story, but a lot of dead people. There's a repeated pattern of the days of Adam were so-and-so, he lived such and such years, here's where his sons, and here's where all the days that he lived, and then he died. Do you know when you read the rest of the genealogies, they don't have that little comment in it? And then he died, and then he died, and then he died. Two probable reasons for that. One, sin leads to death, just like God had promised it would in Genesis chapter 2. Reason number two is probably to highlight the fact that there was one man who didn't die, if you read in the middle of that chapter, chapter 5, verse 21, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years. He had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not for God took him. It doesn't say he died. We've seen already in Genesis that there's a a repeated pattern, and then all of a sudden that pattern's broken. It should like alarm us and wake us up. What's going on here? And honestly, I don't know what's going on here other than Enoch didn't die because he walked with God. But everybody else died. And then you go to chapter 6. Notice the spiral. So we start with an angry brother who murders an innocent brother, Lamech, a polygamist who murders more people, a bunch of dead people and feeling the weight and the curse of sin. Look at chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. 
When the sons of God came in to the daughters of the man, and they bore children to them, they were mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. There's a lot of speculation again about who these sons of God are as they're marrying the daughters of man. Jude talks about this in conjunction with angels, and so traditionally the the teaching has been that fallen angels, demons, came in a human-like body, married women, and made these giant creatures named the Nephilim. One thing we should know about the Nephilim is that they're introduced here, but they come up later in the book of Numbers as God's people are supposed to cross over the Jordan River and enter the land of promise, and they don't because of the Nephilim. So there's obviously something being introduced here that's going to pick up later in Numbers. But here's what we do know is clear. The spiral of sin is getting worse. Sin is spreading. It could be that Genesis 6 is talking about kings. Sons of God could be a a phrase talking about kings of other nations. could be that sons of God is just talking about the line that came from Adam. Notice that Adam in chapter 5 talked about God making him in his image as as a son of God. And so therefore the sons of God are coming from that line and they marry the daughters of men. I don't really know, honestly. But I think if we stick with what's clear, what's just the basic simple point, I think we can all hopefully agree. Sin is spreading and getting worse and it's leading to all kinds of suffering. So much so that in verse 5 you saw, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The sin is the source of all the evil and suffering we see in these chapters and in the world, from anger to murder to polygamy to more murder to death to sexual immorality between sons of men and sons of daughters of men. One thing we need to realize, again, if you read Romans 8 later, is that sin is not just the source of all personal evil, so murder and gossip and lying and stealing, and that hurts us because somebody sinned against us. But then you have the bigger question, well, what about natural disasters? What about people that die from tornadoes and hurricanes and tsunamis? And how devastating is it when we see those things and the death tolls that come after those stories? We need to remember that the ground was cursed in Genesis chapter 3. So death coming to all men includes personal evil and natural evil. And this is why Romans 8 says that the creation of the world was subjected to futility by the one who subjected it in hope. So if you want to blame all natural disasters solely on the evil one, Satan, or evil powers, that's just Mother Nature doing evil fighting back against us. What do you do with Romans 8, verse 20 and 21? Somebody subjected the creation to futility. I would insert in Genesis 3 language, somebody cursed creation. But did it in hope 
because God's curse also brought hope. God's promise in Genesis 3 that we've seen the last couple weeks also had a word of hope to defeat evil and suffering. And so the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God is what Romans continues to say. So as we see natural disasters, we need to know that there is a God who is sovereign over all of them and because of the curse of sin. So sin is the source of every evil, suffering, and devastation that you will ever see. Which then begs the question, as I mentioned earlier, so again, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're a skeptic, or you have friends that are, we ask the question, why doesn't God just get rid of it? If he's sovereign over it, why would he allow these hurricanes and tsunamis and tornadoes? Doesn't he have the power? Well, of course he has the power. The God who spoke everything out of nothing has the power to do anything. So then he must not be good. And Here's where you want to get in that conversation and the thoughts you need to be thinking if these are your own questions. Why could a good God who is all-powerful allow suffering to exist? If sin is the source of all suffering, then he would have to remove all the people who are sinning to get rid of all evil. Do you see how that works? If God is going to get rid of suffering, well, if he's all-powerful, then just get rid of suffering. Then you're asking God to get rid of you. Is that what you want? That's the sort of conversation you'd want to have with someone if they're struggling with those questions. And then you want to press in a little more. Not like an arrogant, self-righteous, I'm better than you sort of way. Very gently, you want to ask them, have you ever caused suffering? Has your heart ever led you to do evil? Well, then God would have to get rid of you. Don't, Don't you see that your sin is why the world is the way it is? And if God's going to get rid of suffering, then he's, he's got to get rid of you because you've caused suffering. And then sometimes we might object back and, and we'll say, no, 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 I mean, just the really bad people. I mean, the murderers. And okay, so let's say he gets rid of all the murderers. You, you've never murdered anybody. Good for you. So all the murderers are gone. But then that makes a next tier of people who are the worst people in the world. We'll go on for a long time without any murderers, but then eventually you'll get to a point, where do you draw the line where you eventually are the worst person in the world and the most evil person in the world? Eventually you get to that point where we're, we're so free of murderers that we then get to rapists, and we're like, okay, we'll get rid of all the rapists. Okay, let's get rid of all the gossips, and then we'll get rid of, oh wait, there's nobody left. What we need to understand is that God's plan is better than our plan and that in God's strange providence and mystery, he has allowed suffering in the world for one climactic reason. So that he could send his son Jesus into the world to take suffering on himself. The all-powerful God became lowly, He didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He gave up of himself. He emptied himself. He became the form of a servant. And then he took on suffering. 
Jesus Christ is the reason why we should have great hope in the midst of sin and suffering. Did you notice in our story, God is merciful to warn Cain before he sinned? That's because the God of the Bible is very merciful. Did you notice that the God of the Bible is also patient with sinners and wishes that no one would perish? He comes in verse 9, not with guns a-blazing and lightning a-firing. And he asks questions, where's Abel? He knows where Abel is. He knows exactly what's happening. How do you know that, Pastor Phil? Because he says, I know Abel's blood is crying out for justice. He knows exactly what Cain did. But this God is patient with sinners. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Don't you even see that in the way he handles Cain right here? If you've ever been a parent or you've ever had to discipline someone, you know that if you tell them something, hey, don't do this. Here's what will be good for you. Here's what will not be good for you. They turn around and they don't listen to you. Like, how furiating is that? Like, I just told you. That's exactly what happens here. He just told him, anger is inside your heart. Sin is crouching. Do what's good and you will be accepted. He's warning. He's pleading. He is trying. and He doesn't listen. If I were God, we would all be in bad shape because I would be really mad. Smack that boy around. That's not what he does. But he does. He does punish sin. So let's not get all soft and say, oh, God's just God of love and mercy. He did punish Cain. He was exiled even further out to the east. God is a God of justice. He doesn't just sweep sin under the rug. He doesn't just turn away and say, oh, I'll just pretend it never happened. Right from the beginning, of the Bible, we see that God is both merciful and patient and slow to anger. Cain should have been punished. Read the rest of God's law in the Pentateuch. What do you deserve if you kill and murder someone? Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, life for a life. Cain deserves to die, but he doesn't. When we see this conversation between Cain and God, we should see God's patience and his mercy to not give what Cain deserves. But we should also see that God is a God of justice and will punish sin. All of it is foreshadowing the climactic story of Jesus. But in this story, it's a little different. In the Cain and Abel story, we hear that the blood from the ground is crying out for vengeance. The blood is crying out and it is demanding for justice. Have you ever thought about Jesus' blood spilt on the ground? But it's not crying out for justice. It's crying out forgiveness. It's crying out for your mercy to be extended, God's mercy to be extended to you. What an unbelievable story on the cross where the righteous, just God is both the just and the justifier of the ungodly. Where when Jesus dies on the cross, he both punishes sin and forgives sinners. This is the beauty of the gospel. And that Jesus would rise again from the dead, 
would show his victory over suffering and his victory over sin so that you and I could say along with all the writers of the New Testament, I consider it pure joy when I face trials of many kind because I know, I know that this suffering is only going to produce in me perseverance and it's going to produce in me joy and it's going to produce in me something greater because this world is just temporary. It's a fleeting, short, vapor-like time. This suffering is short and there will be all eternity where suffering and sin is no more. So we can say, I don't, I don't count the present suffering as, as something that can be compared to the eternal glories that will one day be revealed. We can say along with all the New Testament authors that sin and suffering, they don't have the last word, that Jesus does. And we, we can then therefore go out into the world and we can care for people who are suffering and give them the message of hope in their suffering. We should care for all suffering as Christians, physical suffering, mental suffering, and especially spiritual suffering, where people who would perish from this earth and only experience eternal suffering as Christians, our hearts should be very much concerned with suffering, knowing that sin at its core is its source, but that Jesus is its solution and that we have hope to offer the rest of the world. Friend, do you believe that this morning? The God of the Bible is all-powerful and he is good and he shows it by the power of his gospel to end suffering once and for all. Remember the question I asked? If he's going to get rid of suffering, then he's got to get rid of you. Now, there's another plan. There's another way. He got rid of his son. You see what the plan he chose? He planned to have his son be the one that had to be removed from his presence and be crushed. Why have you forsaken me? He got rid of his son so that you and I could be accepted and so his blood could cry out not for justice and vengeance but for mercy and forgiveness. Let's pray.